Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Jenny. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to tell you about another podcast, Savvy Psychologist. I know that reading the news is draining, work is stressful, and there's always drama with friends and family. So if you're feeling down and you need a pick-me-up, check out the podcast Savvy Psychologist. It's hosted by author and psychologist Ellen Hendrickson. She also wrote the book How to Be Yourself, a guide for living with social anxiety. Every week on Savvy Psychologist, Ellen shares useful, all-too-relevant tips on how to manage stress and live better. She covers topics like how to be happy when the world makes you depressed and how to maximize breaks at work so they actually help you recharge. It's a super useful, sometimes really funny show. And best of all, it'll help you feel better. So check out Savvy Psychologists wherever you listen to podcasts. Take a second to think about all the people you know. The friends, family, partners, coworkers, mentors, etc. Now think about all the people that they know. And then all the people that those people know. It all forms a bustling, complicated, interconnected web. Welcome to Web of Women, the show that dives into the identities and relationships that form who we are as individuals and communities. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Wonder Media Network. Each episode of Web of Women will be an interview. I'll kick things off by interviewing someone I know. Then, my connection will pick someone from her web of connections and interview her. Then that person will pick someone she wants to interview. For this first season, I'm starting four mini-webs by talking to four women with whom I have different relationships. Last episode, I talked to one of my closest friends from college, Sosie Bacon. She told me about her decision to become an actor and the evolution of her political perspective and body politics. If you missed it, go back and listen. This episode, I picked one of my closest friends from the post-college work world, Jing Cao. Jing and I first met in the fall of 2014 when I started working at Bloomberg News. She joined just a few months before I did. We became great friends as we each discovered a wide range of beats and eventually landed on our permanent teams. Jing covered tech companies, and I covered consumer companies, specifically in the beverage, tobacco, and cannabis industries. We worked together until Jing left last year to go to a startup that has since been acquired by Quartz. Okay. Are you ready? I am ready. So to start off easy, can you tell me your name, title, and what you do? Sure. My name is Jing, like Jingle Bells. Cow. I work at Quartz. I'm the head of platform engagement there. And what I do is um, I build community uh, on this app where we're trying to focus on creating a place for people to discuss the news in a smart, civil way. And we 
my next question is where are we speaking from? But we're speaking together from an apartment in New York. <laughs> and the people next door are practicing music. So whatever. We're in New York. Unfortunately. There will be some. It's the way it's going to be for now. So tell me your story. Let's start from the beginning. I was born in Xi'an, China. When I was born, my dad had already left for the U.S., so I actually didn't meet him until I immigrated here. My mom stayed for about eight months before she left as well, so I spent the first six and a half years of my life with my grandparents and my uncles. Growing up, I, uh, when I was in China, I always knew that I was coming to America. Like I would go to school and I would play you know, piano, and people would say, oh, you should come to this school or you should join this elementary school, and I would say, no, no, you don't understand. I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be going to America. And one of my earliest memories of what I thought America was, was I actually dreamt that it would be like the Jetsons. So I envisioned a place where everyone lived like the Jetsons. Because in, in my view, America was this place where everything was just so much more advanced and everything was so great. And it was this, you know, cliche, but like land of opportunity, so to speak. Why else would you leave? Why else would you go there otherwise? So I came to America just in time to start first grade. I didn't really know a single word of English. I knew Panda, obviously. Apple, hello, thank you, goodbye. And that was pretty much it. Uh, The first day in elementary school, I walked into a classroom full of people who just did not look like me and who did not speak a language I understood at all, promptly bursted into tears and cried inconsolably for 15 minutes. So that's my first (laughs) real memory of America. But I quickly adjusted and I learned English. And yeah, I spent my childhood in central Jersey, where there were, in fact, a lot of other immigrants from a lot of other different places. Um, And so my town was actually quite a diverse place to be. And growing up, I actually didn't really understand that a lot of America was not as diverse as where I grew up. What was that like? Like, what did you, how did you start to assimilate? Did you feel like you actively had to take that on? I did. It's interesting as an adult, looking back at what I was like as a kid, recognizing that for much of my childhood, wanting to become American was uh, equated with wanting to become more white. And so proud moments of life that I'm now ashamed of is when my friends would say, wow, you're so white or wow, you're like a banana or, or wow, you're a Twinkie. And all of those things brought a sense of pride to me because it told me that somehow I, I fit in, somehow that I was part of what I deemed to be America. And it's really funny uh, because when I was maybe eight or so, my parents actually gave me the option of changing my name to be an American name. And I remember being very excited about that prospect. Like, you know, I read a lot of books, I read a lot of novels, and there were a few names of protagonists that I really liked, like usually like, you know, cool, strong girls who were very tomboyish, some people who I related with. And I almost changed my name to Patricia. What? <laughs> yep. I can't even remember the book, but I remember at the time, one of my favorite books had a female protagonist whose name was Patricia. That is wild. <laughs> I just can't imagine you being named Patricia. I can't either. And I wish I remember why I ended up not 
going through with it, but I did it and I kept my name and my full name, my legal name is still Hanjing, which most people don't know anymore. Do you remember, was there a turning point that you remember when you went from thinking of being called whiter, when you, it changed from being something that you thought was a compliment in some way to something that you were sort of like ashamed for thinking it was a compliment? Yeah, I, it probably happened very recently, like as in, in the last four years since graduating college. I guess in the last four years, this idea of racial identity and like being an immigrant and that immigrant identity, whether it's Chinese American or Filipino American or whatever, insert whatever American, that first part has become something that people write about a lot, has become more sort of present in the broader social consciousness in America. And that forced me to think about that. And that's when I thought, wow, (laughs) I remember being called that and being proud of it. And now at this juncture in life, looking back upon that, that was, I, I, I don't feel ashamed of myself for thinking that or anything like that. But I do feel like if I were growing up today, or if I see someone who is in a similar situation today, I would want to be a voice telling them that it's okay to embrace your identities of both being an immigrant and being an American, being Chinese and being American, whatever that might mean to you. And that that being American does not mean you have to act quote unquote white or whatever. So I want to pay that forward rather than looking back on myself and thinking that I was wrong in some way. So what was your path after leaving home? So I went to Yale for college and I studied history and psychology there. One of the things I learned very quickly at Yale is that many people did not grow up in the diverse bubble that I had grown up in. And that was definitely a very big wake-up call in in many ways. For example, one of the first people I met, she was hosting me. She's a very nice, very awesome person. But this was when I had not even accepted yet. And I was just visiting. She told me that she came from, you know, a Midwest state, very, very, very white. She only knew one Asian person growing up. And before coming to Yale, she had only met this one Asian person and this person happened to have bad BO. And so she thought that all Asians would have bad BO. And it wasn't until she came to Yale that she met more Asian people and realized that that was just totally false. I know you're looking at me with this expression of like, how is that even possible? I know. This person told you this on your visit? Yeah, but but she told me this in the spirit of trying to demonstrate what the school had to offer in terms of opening up your worldview to different people and different perspectives and all of that. And again, as a 17 year old, I heard that story and I was just kind of like, cool. As an almost 28 year old, looking back and thinking about that, I think certain people who have had more traumatic experiences as immigrants would have heard that story and been absolutely horrified. I like telling it because I think it, A, demonstrates this naivety that I had that all these other people see diversity or have had diverse experiences or have have been exposed to diverse people. Totally untrue, right? But two, I think it also shows 
that different people with different experiences react to different perspectives differently. So I reacted with a cool whatever to this story because to me, this, I really truly did not struggle as an immigrant or at racially growing up. I really didn't. There, there are stories, but I really like truly didn't. Whereas a person who did, a person, in fact, this, this, this very person she's describing probably did struggle racially. And had this person heard that story, you know, he or she would have been horrified, perhaps. So. Wow. <laughs> so post-Yale, walk me through your story. Continue. <laughs> take me on your journey. Take, I'll take you on my, my life journey. Um, I wanted to be a journalist going into college. Um, realized at some point during college that I really wanted to become a business journalist because one of my editors at a summer internship said, if you can report well on the business world, if you can report well on money, if you can follow the money, then you can actually be a reporter on anything. So taking that advice to heart, I ended up going to Columbia Journalism School, studying business journalism. After Columbia, I ended up at Bloomberg. I became an intern there. I covered technology, uh, realized that I love technology, ended up working there met this amazing, beautiful person named Jenny Kaplan. (laughs) I covered oil markets. I covered automobiles. Got to go to the New York auto show, which is really fun. And uh, insurance before I managed to warm my way back to tech. So then I covered tech um, in New York for three years, maybe three years before I took the plunge and decided to do rather than report. Love it. What do you think of as your personal mission statement or what drives you? I think there are different, like I can't pinpoint one thing that really drives me. From a sort of professional career standpoint, I want to have been an integral part of building something awesome. As in, I want to have not only gone down and done like the dirty work of whatever it takes to build a company, whether that's writing 150 emails a day or (laughs) sinking into spreadsheets and doing calculations and analyzing the data and learning SQL and Python on my my own time, or, you know, calling people and getting totally rejected all the time, you know, all, all of those activities like I'm willing to do, but I also want to feel like I've made a measurable impact on creating something, creating a product, creating a, a thing that is used by people. So that that's that's what I want to feel like I've achieved. From a like life world standpoint, I've always been very passionate about education. I think I was really lucky in that I had a very good public education where I had the opportunity to pick and choose activities. And I recognize that a lot of kids in this country don't have that opportunity. And that that kind of also ties into what I think is sort of problematic about our current state of the country, which is really around how can you be an informed citizen? How can you be an engaged citizen? Civic education is something that is severely lacking in our country. 
the understanding of even how to read a piece of information and judge its veracity, like that is not even something that's taught, right? Like, can you identify what is a fact versus an opinion? That simple thing is not something that is taught. And that's a failing of our education system. When you were growing up, what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, for, ooh, I went through a lot of different things. Um, <laughs> I wanted to be an archaeologist for a while. And then I read a bunch of books and realized that a lot of the world had already been explored. I then for a while wanted to be an FBI agent because, or a detective of some sort. And then got a little older and I really wanted to be a senator because I found out that I couldn't be president because I wasn't born here. So then I thought the next sort of more, most influential elected official was the senator. Then (laughs) I guess I became sort of jaded with the political system at a tender age of 14 or 15. And then I really wanted to be an interpreter, like a translator. And then eventually I decided I was going to be a journalist because I liked meeting people and talking to people. And it was a great way for me to figure out what I wanted to do. That's a really diverse set of careers that you wanted to be. (laughs) It's kind of amazing. When you think about that same question now, what do you now want to be when you grow up? For years, I have kind of nursed this loft, I think lofty goal in my head where I wanted to become personally successful enough during the early part of my adult years such that I could take care of my family and my family would never really have to worry about finances ever again. And once I got to that point, I actually have plans, had plans, have plans to become a teacher. What? Yes. Did I not tell you this ever? No. (laughs) Yeah. um, I love that. Yeah. You would be a great teacher. (laughs) Thank you. Um, yeah, I, growing up, right, like, again, the education is super important to me. There are, like, I can name the teachers in my life who have made a measurable impact on, on, on my well-being. And it's not just, like, from, like, teaching me, not from teaching me knowledge, but my fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Smith, um, fifth grade was a really hard year for me for a variety of reasons. And I remember, so Mrs. Smith was my math and science teacher technically, but she was also my quote-unquote homeroom teacher. And she had an incredible collection of books. And she and I bonded a lot over the love of these books. And she was the one who introduced me to the Redwall series, which I devoured. And they became for a very long time an escape for me from reality. And, And I would sit there and I would imagine what my character would be in the Redwall book. Like, could I be the squirrel warrior, you know, rough and tumble with my, oh, was a slingshot I use? I can't remember. So that was one aspect of it. The other aspect of it was I remember one day being just distraught. And I don't even remember the reason, but something was happening at home. And I uh, remember just not even being capable of going to recess. And I, I, I stayed in class after everyone broke for lunch and I was just kind of in my corner and she came over to me and I just like broke down crying and and she just like sat there with me for the entire period and like and I I probably told her what was going on um that's just like that moment meant a lot to me that like she would take that time willingly without even thought um to 
spend that time with me. Sorry. <laughs> oh, big shout out to Miss Smith. <laughs> um, and, and she wasn't the only teacher to do that, right? Like she, she was just one of many. Hey, Shira. Hi, Jenny. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm okay. Just enjoying my Sunday. Well, as you know, this season of Web of Women is sponsored exclusively by Skype, which is a Microsoft product. And I use Skype. I used it for many of the interviews for Web of Women. And we also use it for meetings here at WMN. So I wanted to talk to you about how do you use Skype? Well, I really love having our meetings over Skype when you've been traveling. Makes me feel really close to you because I can see your beautiful face and talk to you about all the things that matter most to our company. I really feel that. It's really important (laughs) because often our company works remotely. Skype is a software that enables the world's conversations. Millions of people and businesses use Skype to make free video and audio calls, whether they're one-on-one or with groups. You can also send instant messages and share files with other people. I do really love the GIF feature, I have to say. We're big on GIFs here. And Skype's free, which is an added bonus, given that we are a startup. So thanks to Skype for sponsoring this season of Web of Women. I also want to note that while Skype fuels conversations like the ones we have on this show, that doesn't necessarily mean that they approve of what's being said or agree with it. Those opinions belong to the people who are speaking them. Let's get back to my conversation with Jing. Hi. (laughs) When you think about community, I feel like everyone, you talked about how you're building community, but how do you think about your community? What do you consider to be your community or communities? To me, like someone who's in my community is someone who I've developed a genuine connection with in, in, in some capacity and is someone who I feel comfortable reaching out to about whatever and hope that they would feel comfortable reaching out to me about. Uh, and that is, and maybe, maybe that is actually my definition of family, that community, like a, like a very close knit group of people is my community, but they're also my family. How does your political perspective relate to your communities or I guess your families if you think of them synonymously? I think I have always valued the idea of like freedom of speech, freedom of thought, that kind of thing. I feel like I personally want to hear and digest and and be exposed to opinions and perspectives from all different person like all different people and all different backgrounds and all different um political viewpoints I don't take someone's like political leanings and say you're out (laughs) or anything like that like I've always been of the opinion that like a healthy disagreement is always good and in fact many people who are I'm extremely close to like considered to be some like like closest friends or family or whatnot um and I disagree on quite a few things Politically. I think, though, that because of the Trump election 
and frankly, because of the events leading up to the Trump election, from things like Black Lives Matter, Occupy Wall Street, and, and all of these sort of movements that have been simmering, bubbling, bursting in, into the common consciousness, I think that it's it's impossible sort of to divorce politics from your relationships nowadays. Even if you don't talk about it, I think that it's something that everyone is now aware of. How do you feel that politics affects your life at an individual level? Like, do you feel like you're a politically active person or how do you think about politics? Well, I was not a politically active person at all for a very long time. And in fact, you know, going and canvassing for your mom was like the first like real political activity I've taken in, in, in a while. Um, in part because I was a journalist and couldn't. So, you know, I couldn't really go to rallies and whatnot. And I also don't personally feel drawn to that kind of political activism in the first place. But I think for a very long time, I felt like as a person, one person coming from, you know, nowhere with nothing, I didn't really have a stake politically. Like, like why I gave up my dreams of becoming a senator, right? Like, who am I? Like, who, I don't have any backing. I don't have any, like, anything. Who, who would care about what I have to say? I felt that way about politics for a while. Like, I still voted, but that was it. Like, I would vote in, like, the, I don't even, actually, I think I missed quite a few midterm elections even because I just voted in the presidential elections because politics felt to me so untouchable like that, that it didn't necessarily impact me. And thinking about your family, either then or now that you do feel more politically active, how do your political views compare to your family's political views? My mother is pretty much the most apolitical person you will ever meet. It is an ongoing battle for me to get her to be more politically engaged. But this was something I knew growing up as a kid. Like, she hated talking about politics. Like, she was, she's never been the person I could talk to about politics. She was, she's not informed at all. And she doesn't care. And the only news that she really gets comes from pretty much the Chinese community, which is not an accurate source for news in, in any case. Um, my dad growing up was a bit more political, but I don't really remember what he was all about. Um, and I have a sneaking suspicion he voted for Trump, but I don't talk to him, so I don't know. My brother, who's 10 years younger than me, is generally a very thoughtful kid when it comes to this kind of thing. And I would say that I've probably had a very big influence on him when it comes to politics. And not not necessarily what to think, but I, I, I hope that I've been better around teaching him how to think and, and how to not maybe trust the information that he's getting from YouTube videos, for example. I, I do, I will say though that the Trump election is what caused me to think again about politics. And as a result had caused me to talk to my mom more about politics. And uh, we had this long back and forth about why she should vote. She did not, but still. That did actually influence her to pay more attention to the ongoings of, of the world. And most recently, my grandma had to get her green card renewed. So I was doing the application and my mom had a mini freak out where she was worried that 
everything that was going on in the U.S., which she's now sort of paying attention to, was going to impact her ability to renew her green card. It fortunately didn't, but I take it as a positive sign of my mom starting to understand that, yes, the decisions being made by the U.S. government actually do and have and will impact her life. You've mentioned voting a number of times. Do you remember your first voting experience? I want to say, I'm, I'm so ashamed to admit this, but I actually think 2012 might have, might have been my first election. You're ashamed that you didn't vote in the midterm in 2010? The thing is, is like, I, I preach this whole thing about like how important I think civic education is, which I do, for the record. But then I'm looking at my own practice and I'm like, dang, like it really wasn't until the last few years that I'm truly like being the kind of citizen that I thought I should be when I was a kid. Have you ever felt radical? And if so, when? (laughs) Uh, Radical, like in like, let's burn everything down radical. In any way you want to take the word radical. (laughs) Um, You know, there, I, I think I was probably the most radical just in almost immediately post Trump election. (laughs) because truly I really just could not understand the feelings that I was processing were around almost individual betrayal. Like, like this, I, this sense of like, I worked so hard to be a quote unquote good American citizen. Like, you know, in, in all the ways that one can imagine, I, deeply believed in this idea of like the great melting pot and this place that people come to be accepted and to have a chance at a better life and like all of those things and and that America was welcoming to that precise mentality. Despite seeing evidence to the contrary, like I, I still believe that that was a core value that Americans held as a whole. And to feel so wrong about that that made me, I, I don't know, I, I guess like in that moment, I felt very radical. Okay, we've talked a lot about politics, and I now want to talk about gender, another giant topic. When was the first time that you felt aware of gender? <laughs> when I was told that I could not become a Shaolin monk because I was a girl. <laughs> when I was a kid, and still today, I loved watching like, uh, which is like like basically like kung fu type dramas and they were all set in like ancient China and like everyone flew and like had amazing fighting powers and like I still imagine that I can do that. Genuinely, like I was thinking about all the ways I could become a martial arts master and my mom had already turned down the prospect of me doing karate because I was already too much of a tomboy. She wanted me to be girlier. <laughs> but uh Funnily enough, that wasn't where I thought about gender. Um, no, it was it was when I, for I guess a while, thought about running away, and I thought about where I would want to go, and I want that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to run away and become a Shaolin monk, but then I found out that I couldn't because I was a girl. So after that, follow up question to that: <laughs> um, How do you think that gender has affected your path or your career? since then? Well, as you can see, I'm not a monk. (laughs) 
I always, growing up, I actually for many years wished that I was a boy. I always resented this idea of like femininity and what it means to be feminine. And, you know, my mom in many ways is not traditional, but growing up in that particular way, like she always would, you know, say, why don't you fold your napkin? Like, that's not a very feminine thing for you to do to crumple it up like you do and make a mess of things and whatnot. Especially like growing up in the 90s and early 2000s, like that idea of what a girl had to be like, liking pink and dresses and makeup and all of those things was still a pretty entrenched ideology. And that sense, that sort of vague sense seeped down into how I grew up and I rejected that and therefore I always wished I was a boy because then I wouldn't have to deal with that. And so that that was me as a kid. I think me as an adult though, like I actually felt like I didn't have a lot of the bad experiences that a lot of other women have. And this is not to minimize their experiences, but just to say that I think I've been really lucky. And I think that if anything, gender my gender might have actually been an advantage in some ways because in a couple of different checkboxes on diversity, I I was there. (laughs) So the benefits of sexism, you're saying? Kind of, yeah. Like like in that, like I entered the professional world in a time when diversity was something that a lot of companies started to care about a lot. I might be making this up totally, but I'm guessing that, you know, being a woman, being, you know, Chinese American in, in, in a professional sense might have actually been beneficial from the diversity perspective, which is probably a terrible thing to say. But I think that that is actually true. I also feel quite lucky to not have had negative experiences that I feel many other people have had. All right. I, I have heard from other people that they've had. Right. This is, I think this is what is really hard about talking about women and equality in the workplace is that there are certain ways in which things are getting better in that it, diversity or, or gender parity or all of those things or understanding that women are not lesser beings is, is a topic of discussion and interest and in, in all of that and, and that there are genuinely lots and lots of people who care deeply about making sure that women are being treated equally, right? Because it is popular now. It is something that is talked about in all sorts of workplaces that women are often mistreated and there needs to be this focus on more gender equality. It almost is like it's harder to see when there isn't gender equality. Exactly. Yes. Because everyone talks about why it's a good thing and why it's important. And it makes it way harder to be like, wait a second, I know you're saying that, but then you're doing something that's actually pretty messed up. It's a really tough issue also from the perspectives of the women who are trying to advance professionally, right? Because we as women, like, like let's say I want to ask for a raise or a promotion or whatnot, <laughs> this is super counterintuitive, but like, let's say I get it. Like in the back of my head, I'm also like worried, like, did I push too far? Am I only getting this because I'm a woman? Like, like there, like there are just so many little nuances that make this a very vastly complicated issue. Let's talk religion. 
Okay. What's your relationship with religion? Is it a part of your life? Is it something you grew up with? How do you see religion and yourself? I actually learned English from a group of Jehovah's Witnesses. So my mom, uh, when I first immigrated to America, uh, she was learning English from this wonderful, I think, Taiwanese woman who had married a man who was Jehovah's Witness and she had converted. And her, actually two nieces, would come over every weekend and they would read with me the children's Bible, um, which I may still have that copy of it. And so inadvertently, I soaked in a lot of Jehovah's Witness Christianity. But Theology. But theology, yes, that's the story. Um, <laughs> see, this is how much I know about religion, right? Uh, <laughs> and I, I attended a service at some point with them, had no idea what was going on, ate the cracker and was done. I guess as a kid, my family would take me to Buddhist shrines or Buddhist temples over New Year's, and then I would light the incense, which I love doing, and then bow three times, which I also love doing. Um, but remember, the act has zero inclination of what that means. Uh, then, fast forward a little bit, um, the town I grew up in was uh, had a very big Jewish population, most of whom were very casual Jews. <laughs> and uh, but, but a big enough Jewish population such that I got Yom Kippur off, I got Rosh Hashanah off, so I like to joke that I knew the Jewish holidays better than I knew the Christian ones. And I remember at some point in my growing up phase that I actually very much wanted to convert to Judaism, again, without knowing any of the theology, like truly nothing, purely because I loved that the Jewish community felt so close-knit and that everyone knew each other, that there was this sort of sense of wanting to take care of each other, which I felt that the Chinese-American community severely lacked. I also, I guess, growing up, I sometimes um, in desperation would actually pray, but I didn't know how. I just would, I guess, go to the window and I knew everyone kneeled, so I did that and then I would pray and I, I would say, if there was a God, please let this happen. Like, if, if you are there, like, please, 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 whatever. And that is pretty much, that is my relationship with religion in a nutshell. So, first of all, on behalf of the Jewish community, we would love to have you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Second of all, it seems like there was a drive to want some sort of religious connection in some ways. Or that sense of community, it seems like, from what you were just saying. Do Do you feel that now? And do you feel spiritual like is that something that you think is you think of as part of your identity to this day not at all (laughs) so actually I I missed a part of the story where I became staunchly atheist publicly even though I still did the whole kneeling praying thing if I was desperate but today as a whole I am not spiritual in the sense that I it's not really part of my identity. I don't really think about religion very often. I don't identify with any religion at all. Um, I, I do feel like a sense of awe when I go to a, a religious place. So, but it's, it's the history that speaks to me, right? Like it's the knowledge that there were all of these people who worked hard, who died in the process of building this building or, or, or 
or carving the statue or, or whatever, and that people spent money on this and resources on this, and they came here for refuge, and they came here for shelter, and they came here for community, that speaks to me. Like, I love that. that that's really powerful to me. But me personally, I don't not believe, but I don't believe. It's a bit of a cop-out, but I just don't think about it, if that makes sense. I think they call it agnostic. They do, but I, I people say it's such a cop out, right? Because it's like, well, no, you can't, you can't have, you can't have it both ways. I'm never gonna call your personal beliefs a cop out. <laughs> Thanks. I want you to feel empowered to believe whatever you believe. <laughs> okay, final question. Okay. We both have worked in content, and I know that we're voracious content consumers. What do you think about when you think of just like incredible content that you love, or that's been formative for you? Hmm. Redwall, the series, again, was just so incredibly important to me. It it was like grand adventure. There was a clear enemy that they needed to defeat. There was um, underdogs. Like you had to overcome these obstacles. There were puzzles that needed to be solved, treasure hunts. Like it was, it was truly just amazing and joyful and awesome. And going back to civic education, um, when in senior year, I read Akil Rudamar's The Constitution of Bible or something like that. I can't remember the title anymore. I'm ashamed to say. But I basically read that cover to cover multiple times and slept with it. There are just so many things that like, like are important to me, right? Like Finding Neverland was one of my favorite movies. And... Oh, actually, one more thing I have to plug. ProPublica's An Untold Story of Rape. That, I mean, it's an article, was one of the most amazing pieces of journalism I've ever read still today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Web of Women. Next week, stay tuned for the start of the third mini-web. The month of February is all about the first link. I'm starting each chain. Then March will be all about link number two, and April the next step beyond. Next week, I'll be chatting with another former Bloomberger, this time, a colleague who was many levels my senior. I'm Megan Murphy. I am a longtime journalist, former editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. For the next link in Jing's web, Jing gets to pick someone who she wants to interview from her life. Stay tuned for episode six to hear their conversation about politics, gender, religion, and identity. I'm so excited to be embarking on this experiment with you to test out this new kind of podcast. If you have any questions or feedback, or if you want to start your own web, email me at web at wondermedianetwork.com. You can also find us on Instagram at wmn.media and on Twitter at wmnmedia. This episode was produced by me, Jenny Kaplan, with help from Allie Lindenberg, Shira Atkins, and Ben Brower. A huge thanks to Overcoats for the music and to the women of the web for making this show possible. Talk to you next week. <laughs>